Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochire. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. We've been learning about the lives of Chinese immigrants to the United States in the late 18 and early 1900s. People from all over the world hope to find gold in the California hills. Today, we'll hear about a school principal who came from Canada in 1844 with her Irish parents, and a family that emigrated from Scotland by way of New York. There's also a school superintendent who migrated to California from the South. But we've learned that Chinese immigrants faced uniquely hostile and sometimes violent discrimination. When we left off last time, San Francisco's Chinatown had become home for more families and not just bachelors. Two generations of Chinese immigrants were advocating for suffrage and education, not just for their own sake, but for the benefit of their homeland. Today, I'm focusing on one Chinese-American family, the Tapes. Among the many young girls who arrived in San Francisco in 1868 was one 11-year-old from Shanghai. After five months in Chinatown, she was taken in by the Ladies' Protection and Relief Society on Franklin Street. We don't know what her parents named her, but the Relief Society named her Mary McLattery after the home's assistant matron. The following year, Chu Deep arrived from Taishan. He initially worked as a houseboy for the Sterling family. They owned cows, and Chu delivered milk to the Sterling's customers. According to one account, the Relief Society was on Chu's route. In 1875, he met Mary while he did his deliveries. They spoke in different dialects, so Mary and Chu conducted their six-month courtship in English. On November 16th, they married at the First Presbyterian Church on Stockton Street. Before long, Chu Deep changed his name to Joe Tape. The Tape's daughter, Mamie, was born the following summer. Her Chinese name, Yunhyung, means distant fragrance. The tapes would have three more children, Frank, Emily, and Gertrude. Mr. Tate built a successful business delivering goods for wholesale Chinese merchants. The merchandise included rice, opium, tea, herbal medicines, clothing, silks, and porcelain. He eventually started transporting baggage for new arrivals to San Francisco from China. He also directed Chinese funerals, organizing elements such as the urns, incense, paper banners, and the food. The canopied funeral platforms would be arrayed with roast pork, oranges, pears, and pastries that Tape also arranged for. Joe Tape was respected by white and Chinese residents and he sometimes served at the Chinese consulate as an interpreter. Mary Tape was a skilled photographer and painter. Her landscapes included the scenic destinations that she and Joseph visited every summer, Yosemite, Lake Tahoe, and the Sierra Nevada, for example. By Mary's own account, the family lived, quote, the same as other Caucasians except in features, end quote. The Tapes lived in the Black Point neighborhood, now called Cow Hollow, which was predominantly white. Teen neighbor Florence Eveleth taught little Mamie and Frank reading and math. But neither the tape's affluence nor assimilation could protect them from discrimination. 
1884, they decided to enroll eight-year-old Mamie in school. There were mission schools for Chinese children in Chinatown, but the Spring Valley Primary School was right in their neighborhood. One September morning, dressed in a checked pinafore and with a ribbon in her braided hair, Mamie went with her mom to enroll at Spring Valley. But when the tapes got to the one-story wooden building on Union Street, Principal Jenny Hurley refused to admit Mamie. School board policy prohibited the admission of students of Chinese descent, even though state law required schools to be, quote, open for the admission of all children between the ages of 6 and 21 years of age, end quote. Joe Tape asked the Chinese consulate for help. He knew that they had experience initiating anti-discrimination lawsuits. Vice Consul Frederick B. was a white attorney who had represented Chinese minors and the Chinese Six Companies. B. wrote to the school superintendent, Andrew Jackson Mulder. So inconsistent with the treaties, constitutions, and laws of the United States, especially so in this case, as the child is native-born, that I consider it my duty to renew the request to admit the child and all other Chinese children resident here who desire to enter the public schools under our charge. Jackson was unmoved. The school board voted 8-3 to three to, quote, absolutely prohibit each and every principal of each and every school, end quote, from enrolling any Mongolian child. One of the dissenters was Dr. Charles Cleveland, who supported educating all American children, quote, whether from Africa, Portugal, Great Britain, Ireland, or China, end quote. But school board member Isidore Danielwitz was happy to comply with the resolution, saying he'd, quote, rather go to jail than allow a Chinese child to be admitted to the schools, end quote. The tape sued, naming Principal Hurley, the school board, and its superintendent as defendants. The suit claimed that the school board's actions violated California law and the 14th Amendment. In a written statement, Joseph Tape emphasized his family's assimilation into American society. Fifteen years ago, I discarded my cue and have never since worn one. My wife and I are now, and for 15 years past, have been clothed in the American costume. The said Mamie Tape is now and always has been dressed in the American costume in the manner common and usual for a child of her years. On January 9 of 1885, the court decided in favor of the tapes, Judge McGuire writing, To deny a child born of Chinese parents in this state entrance to the public schools would be a violation of the law of the state and the Constitution of the United States. He also ruled, it would be unjust to levy a forced tax upon Chinese residents to help maintain our schools and yet prohibit their children born here from education in those schools. In addition, the Board of Education have ample power to keep out all children who are blighted by filth, infection, or contagion, or who are daily brought in contact with pollution of any kind. But any such objection must be personal to any particular child so barred out, without regard to its race or color. In the case at bar, it is admitted that the child is healthy and of cleanly habits, and of healthy and cleanly surroundings, 
and her application for admission as a pupil to the Spring Valley School is proper and lawful and must be granted. The California Supreme Court upheld the lower court's decision. The school board appealed, and Superintendent Mulder took the further step of lobbying the state legislature. In a telegram, he protested, to the Honorable W.B. May, Assembly Chamber, Sacramento. I fear the decision of the Supreme Court admitting Chinese will demoralize our schools. But the one remedy is for the legislature to declare urgent the passage of bills already introduced by you to establish separate Chinese classes. Without such action, I have every reason to believe that some of our classes will be inundated by Mongolians. Trouble will follow. Please answer. Andrew J. Mulder, Superintendent of Schools. As alluded to in Judge McGuire's ruling, California allowed the exclusion of children of, quote, filthy and vicious habits. Under the so-called urgency provision, the legislature added, quote, and also to establish separate schools for children of Mongolian or Chinese descent. When such separate schools are established, Chinese or Mongolian children must not be admitted into any other schools, end quote. On April 7, 1885, Mamie Tape, accompanied by lawyers, was again denied admission to Spring Valley School. The excuse this time was that she didn't have a vaccination certificate and that classes were full to capacity. Ms. Hurley offered to put Mamie on the waiting list. Mary Tape wrote to the school board. Dear Sirs, I see that you are going to make all sorts of excuses to keep my child out of the public schools. Dear Sirs, will you please to tell me, is it a disgrace to be born a Chinese? Didn't God make us all? What right have you to bar my children out of the school because she is a Chinese descent? There is no other worldly reason that you could keep her out except that. I suppose you all goes to churches on Sundays. Do you call that a Christian act to compel my little children to go so far to a school that is made in purpose for them? My children don't dress like the other Chinese. They look just as funny amongst them as the Chinese dressed in Chinese look amongst you Caucasians. Besides, if I had any wish to send them to a Chinese school, I could have sent them two years ago without going to all this trouble. You have expended a lot of the public money foolishly, all because of one poor little child. Her playmates is all Caucasians, ever since she could toddle around. If she is good enough to play with them, then is she not good enough to be in the same room and study with them? You had better come and see for yourselves. See if the tapes is not the same as other Caucasians, except in features. It seems no matter how a Chinese may live and dress, so long as you know they Chinese, then they are hated as one. There is not any right or justice for them. You have seen my husband and child. You told him it wasn't Mamie Tape you object to. If it were not Mamie Tape you object to, then why didn't you let her attend the school nearest her home? instead of first making one pretense, then another pretense of some kind to keep her out. It seems to me Mr. Mulder has a grudge against this eight-year-old Mamie Tape. 
I know there is no other child, I mean Chinese child, dare to go to your public Chinese school. May you, Mr. Mulder, never be persecuted like the way you have persecuted little Mamie Tape. Mamie Tape will never attend any of the Chinese schools of your making. Never. I will let the world see, sir, what justice there is when it is governed by the race prejudice men. Just because she is of the Chinese descent, not because she don't dress like you, because she does. Just because she is descended of Chinese parents, I guess she is more of American than a good many of you that is going to prevent her being educated. Mrs. M. Tate. Six days later, the city's new school for Chinese children opened in Chinatown. It was on the second and third floors above a grocery store at the corner of Jackson and Stone Streets. Mamie Tape and her six-year-old brother Frank were the first students to arrive. The Tapes never attended Spring Valley Elementary. Local newspapers reported extensively on Tape versus Hurley, including Mamie and Frank's first day at the Chinatown School. The reporter from the Evening Bulletin wrote, quote, Frank has no cue, his black hair being allowed to grow as it was meant to do, and neatly trimmed. Mamie has the traditional braid of American children hanging down her back and tied with a ribbon, end quote. Years later, the press was still interested in the Tape family. In 1892, the San Francisco Call wrote an extensive piece called What a Chinese Girl Did. I'm going to read the whole thing so we can learn more about the Tape family and hear a little more from them in their own words. I also wanted you to hear the reporter's attitude towards this Chinese-American family. When I was told the other day that somewhere up in the neighborhood of Washington and Stockton Streets, there lived a young Chinese woman who devoted most of her spare time to photography, I was considerably surprised and felt prone to believe that my informant was telling me a fairy tale. He insisted, however, that such was the fact, and if I did not believe it, I could go and see for myself. He further told me that her husband was in business on the corner of DuPont and Stockton Streets and that his name was Joseph Tape. I was still incredulous, but went up to see the head of the family and found him in the place designated. On being asked if the story was true, that his wife understood photography, he answered with a laugh and said in as good English as I ever heard in my life, yes, sir, and a good many other things, too. I asked him if I could meet his wife and see some of her work, and he answered, Well, I don't know, but you wait here for a moment, and I will telegraph and ask her. The thought struck me as he started up the street that, being in business that necessitated a good many calls, he probably had a telephone in his house and intended to ask his wife over that if she cared to receive a visitor. I found this afterward to be a mistake and that he really did mean to telegraph her, but this is only one of the many surprises I received during the day. It can better be told later on. Tape returned in a few minutes and said, All right, we can go up. After the shock of hearing a Chinaman say he would telegraph his wife, I was prepared to see and hear almost anything on reaching the house. But my surprise was even greater than I expected when I did get there. And the surprises came so thick and fast that I haven't recovered from them yet. 
The house is situated at 927 Washington Street, in the rear, and is approached by a long, narrow, covered passageway, which leads into a small garden. In the center is the house, an unpretentious two-story cottage in good repair, the steps and porch being enlivened with plants of various kinds in pots and boxes. When I entered, I was ushered into a cozy little parlor, finished in the best of taste, with nice, easy, comfortable chairs to rest in. On the walls hung a number of pretty photographs and one or two oil paintings, while here and there, wedged in between the pictures, were various knickknacks and ornaments. After being offered a chair, my guide left me, saying he would call his wife. I then had a chance to look around me and found that everything in the room bore the unmistakable signs of refinement and had nothing to make anyone believe it the home of a Chinese family. Against the wall at the back part of the room stood an upright piano, on the top of which rested a French horn with a zither, while by the side of these a large pile of music and photographs was to be seen. Next to the piano stood a combination library and specimen case, in which on the lower shelves was a goodly array of books, while the upper part was devoted to some beautiful specimens of California birds, which I found out afterwards had all been shot by the master of the house, as he is a great lover of field sport. Before I had quite finished my review, the soft rustle of skirts reached my ears, and Mr. Tape presented me to his wife and the rest of the family, who came in to see what a reporter looked like. Mrs. Tape received me in the most charming way and bade me welcome to her house. We do not wish to get any newspaper fame, she said, but if you think it will be of interest to your readers to hear about my studies in photography, I shall only be too happy to tell you all about it, and also about myself and how I came to take it up. This was all said in the best of English and with a refined accent, showing that Mrs. Tate must have devoted the greater part of her life to study. And as we talked on further, I found that not only was she extremely well-versed in the ordinary lines of the English language, but was also well posted on the current events of the day. After we were seated, I took a look at my new-made friends and found that, although they had the features and forms of the Chinese race, everything else about them was thoroughly American. Mrs. Tape, whom I took to be about 35 years old, was dressed in a gown of soft, clinging silk or some Indian stuff, which set off her figure to good effect. Her hair was arranged in the latest American fashion and was as black and glossy as ever graced the head of Andalusian beauty. Her face was comely, one might even say pretty, because it had so much intelligence and was set off by a fine mouth, behind which were a set of pearly teeth that showed whenever she laughed. The children were a fine healthy lot and all of them good-looking, taking after their mother in most respects. There were four of them, one boy and three girls, the eldest named Mamie, the second Frank, and the third Emily, while the youngest was a baby three years old, whose name I have forgotten, but remember it was a very pretty one. After they had been presented in order and had answered my salutations in charming language, I turned to Mrs. Tape and asked how it was that her children spoke such good English. No doubt you are surprised, was her reply, but you will not be so when you hear a short history of my life. I was born in the northern part of China, near Shanghai, 
from which place few Chinese ever come to this country. I arrived here when 11 years of age and have not much recollection of the first few months of my residence here, except that I lived somewhere in Chinatown. This only lasted five months, and then I was taken up by the Ladies' Relief Society out on Franklin Street, and it was there, under their care, that I first learned to speak the English language and acquire American manners. I stayed with them five years or more and then met my husband, and we were married after a six-month courtship. Looking up with a happy smile, she continued, We have never had cause to regret our first meeting either, as our lives have been very happy. Since that time, we have always lived as Americans, and our children have been brought up to consider themselves as such. Their education in the common branches has been gained at the Chinese public school on Clay Street and their other accomplishments by private tutors. Each of them has some accomplishment, and my eldest daughter, Mamie, is quite proficient on the piano. I expressed a desire to hear the young lady play and imagine my surprise when without any of the backwardness and diffidence of American girls of the same age, she took her seat at the piano and began to finger the keys. The first few pieces I did not know by name, but she soon began to play the Mockingbird and brought out its notes as well as I have ever heard them brought out by an American girl. Her execution was good and her style graceful. I was more surprised when her mother informed me that she had only been studying four years. Before hearing Miss Tate play, I had the idea the Chinese as a rule were about as musical as a bass drum. But then my opinions had been formed through hearing their performances in the Chinese theaters or at some public funeral. She is only 16 and gives promise of being an excellent physician, as her playing showed that she was in sympathy with her music and did not play merely in a mechanical way. The second daughter, Emily, is also studying music, but had not advanced far enough to give a public performance. She had adopted one American custom, though, which showed her patriotism, and that was dancing. I wanted to ask her to show how far she had advanced in the art, but she felt somewhat constrained before an utter stranger. Her brother, however, assured me that she was well up in all American dances and could trip a measure as well as any other girl. Frank, the only boy, plays the French horn and is a member of one of the boys' brigades in the city. He did not have a chance to let me hear him play, but I think he wanted to, for when I left, I heard the sweet strains of the horn coming from the back part of the house. The baby has not yet begun her musical education, but I have no doubt when she reaches an age suitable to such work, she will be as accomplished as her brother and sisters. Now that I have heard the children show me how accomplished they were in their various pursuits, it struck me that the object I had come for mainly had escaped my memory, and that was to see some of Mrs. Tape's work in photography. Nobody could blame me, however, for forgetting this subject when one takes into consideration the unique surprise that had been sprung upon me. I had only come to see some photographs and talk with the lady that took them, and here I was sitting in a room with a family of full-blooded Chinese listening to a Chinese girl playing an old-time favorite on an American piano and talking to me with as much esprit as any girl of my own race. This fact struck me at first as exceedingly ludicrous, as I had always been accustomed to view the Chinese in an entirely different light. 
but when I saw around me the father and mother and their accomplished children, I changed my opinion in regard to the race in general and saw that with proper instruction, before they had become imbued with national traits, they were as susceptible of civilization as any nation in the world. The more I saw of the tapes in their home circle, the more of this fact became apparent. I was still far from getting to the subject of photography, for at this point, Mr. Tape wished to show me his library and specimen case which stood at the back of the room. Here was a full complement of the Encyclopedia Britannica, a copy of Shakespeare, and various other volumes of useful literature, while on the shelves above were some beautiful specimens of the taxidermist's art, in truth, almost every songster that makes his home in California. Besides all this, there were specimens of gold, silver, galena, etc., from every part of the state, and a beautiful collection of seashells, all gathered by Mr. and Mrs. Tape while traveling about the country. Everything pertaining to the bookcase showed that the owners had good taste and knew what was artistic and what was not. I had seen so much now that I was ready to believe anything they told me and was fully prepared to see some exquisite work in photography. My expectations were more than realized, for Mrs. Tape, when we came around to this subject, showed me some of her work, which was fully equal to any amateur in the state, and I might say would bear comparison with many professionals. In a gray pile of pictures were scenes from almost every place in California, landscapes, still life, and portraits, till you couldn't rest, and all done by a native-born Chinese woman. I expressed my usual surprise that she had been able to conquer the difficult art of photography, and she only laughed, saying, Oh, these are nothing to some of the work I've done. My friends usually beg everything good and leave me the rest. But here, look at these. And she produced a pile of lantern slides. These are some that I take pride in, and they are fully worth it, as some of the reproductions with this article will prove. I not only take my own pictures, but prepare my own plates and my own prints, said the Chinese woman. You will no doubt wonder how I came to understand so much about the business, and I can tell you that everything I know has come from reading different authorities on the subjects and then studying the methods to see which was the best. Every summer, my husband and I go somewhere in the country, and I always make a success of the majority of my pictures. Mrs. Tape here went into a full explanation of her own particular way of getting good negatives, and her husband, at the same time, showed me several diplomas she had received from the Mechanics Institute, which gave her the highest award from amateur photography. No one seeing her pictures could doubt that they deserved a reward, as they were fully up to any work done by Americans here in San Francisco, and were far beyond the usual work of amateurs in any country. The specimens we give in this article are not some of her best efforts, but were picked out because they were family subjects, the figures being those of her children taken at various times. Besides being a first-class photographer, Mrs. Tape has another accomplishment, which probably no other Chinese woman in the world possesses, and that is the art of telegraphy. She can send and receive as well as the best operators and keeps in constant practice by daily use of the instruments, 
connected with a line running from the house to some point near her husband's place of business. You might think it's strange, she said, that I should be able to use the Morse system. And to tell the truth, I have never made any practical use of my knowledge. The way my husband and I learned the use of the instrument was through the kindness of a friend who had a short line to practice on and wished to have somebody on the other end. We took it more to accommodate him than anything else. And both of us soon became proficient in its use. Since then, we have found it so useful to communicate with each other during business hours when my husband is away from home that we have a private line between here and his office that we use whenever necessary. The telegraph instrument is on a table in the dining room and its least click can be heard in any part of the house. Both of the operators handled it in my presence and were as expert as old-time operators. Mrs. Tape had about reached the end of her accomplishments, but her husband pointed to a landscape painting on the wall over the piano and informed me that his wife was the artist, and then, to my surprise, produced an excellent still-life painting of fruit which made my mouth water. Also, some plates hand-painted and tinted which were works of art. I then asked her if she could sing and play, and she admitted even that, but said she would leave her children to show off the musical attainments of the family. The second girl, Emily, is studying the violin, she also informed me, and was progressing rapidly in its use. Joseph Tape, the father of this most interesting family, is the interpreter to the Imperial Consulate of China in this city, and also engaged in the express business, having a monopoly of transporting the Chinese who come here in bond, besides handling large contracts for wholesale merchants in Chinatown. He came to this country 30 years ago and has acquired the English language so as to speak it most fluently. Although he has adopted the United States as his home, he cannot become a voter. This fact he regrets very much, but says he has a boy who will make a good citizen and will be able to vote when he comes of age. Tape is one of the best wing shots on the coast and can give some of our local nimrods cards and spades. He is a thorough sportsman and gives all of his spare time to hunting pursuits and in every possible way is thoroughly American. I asked him and his wife if they ever expected to go back to China again, and Mrs. Tape answered for both. We may someday, if we feel we can afford the trip, but it will only be as tourists visiting a foreign country. California is our home. All of our best and happiest moments have been passed here, and here we shall live and die. I bade them goodbye, and as I passed out of the door, I felt that I had passed one of the most interesting hours of my life. Leland Gamble, San Francisco Call. That state laws establishing racially segregated public schools were unconstitutional. You can learn more about the Tape family in the show notes at AmericanEpistles.com. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or on Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and all the places. The theme music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>